I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. The meeting lasted just about six hours and included a vote on the superintendent's contract, as well as a discussion of the recommendation from the exam school task force. Additionally, we heard a presentation about the Dudley Street Neighborhood Charter School in support of renewing their charter and an update on ESSER funding for the district. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. Happy happy July. July happy 1st today. July. That's right. Rabbit, rabbit. That's right. Well, Jill, you know, the evening began as it always does with the superintendent's update. And in that update, she offered this summary of what appears to be a compromise recommendation from the exam school task force. If you told me two years ago that we would be bringing forward a policy that would significantly increase equitable access to our exam schools for all of our students, I wouldn't have believed that it could come this soon. And then she moved on to update the committee on summer school, sharing that only 75% of the BPS spots have been filled to date. Now, remember, Jill, I think summer school, yeah, summer school starts next week. Right. It looks like they still have about a quarter of the seats open um, for summer school. Uh, we didn't hear an update on the request the committee made in previous meetings that, to ensure that the district understands the summer plans of every student. Just a reminder, Jill, that district has been surveying families and asking them, do you have a summer plan? Um, so I know they have the data. I'm not sure why they're not sharing it on does every family have a summer plan for their child? Right, especially since it's been asked for. We then heard public comments from 24 participants. Almost all of the comments, Ross, right, were against the recommendation that was to come later in the meeting regarding the exam school task force. These folks were advocating for instead the original consensus that was reached during the Monday task force meeting. Ruby Reyes, director of the Boston Education Justice Alliance, offered comments that included these sentiments about the exam school task force recommendation and the superintendent's evaluation. You could do what's right, supporting the proposal that the task force was in consensus about on Monday evening, rather than the proposal this evening in which their consensus was taken from them, as parent Zima Loom shared. The Monday night proposal called for students to come from 100% straight rank in socioeconomic tiers. Once again, like the info sharing policy, we have a BPS policy that is a little less racist, but still racist. The last school committee meeting finished by sharing Dr. Caselius's performance review. What was most telling was the score of exemplary for family and community engagement. Through the pandemic, school communities have shared their ongoing frustration about central office silence. Clearly there's a complete disconnect between what families are experiencing and what you are evaluating. Building trust is done through actions, not simply through saying it or adopting policies that are a little less racist. Thank you. Ross, it seemed to me that public comments and school committee comments were not in alignment last night. What did you think? No, Joe, I mean, this is, uh, this is a common theme that we see in school committee meetings. We hear from public comment um, you know, this impassioned plea from members of the community. And then we hear the school committee sort of talk about how everything is going swimmingly and um, we should just continue on as is. And so if you listen to public comments last night in the school committee discussion, uh, you would think they were talking about different policies and maybe even different districts. The school committee continued to downplay, you know, explain and justify their decisions while the public expressed concern, discontent, and even frustration over what is happening. 
it is this disconnect that will continue to cause strife and anger in the BPS community. All right, it's very unfortunate. The meeting then moved along to a vote on the superintendent's evaluation, which was approved unanimously by the committee. The vice chair of the committee, Michael O'Neill, presented a legal rationale for why the two-year extension of the superintendent's contract was necessary. Here is Vice Chair O'Neill. That if the committee does not notify the superintendent at least 12 months prior to the stated expiration date, and 12 months prior to the stated expiration date would be this evening, June 30th, of its intent to extend or terminate this agreement, the employment relationship shall end upon expiration. So that means if we choose not to extend the superintendent's contract tonight by two years, as was originally planned with a three plus two year contract um, by tonight, which is June 30th, 2021, then we are automatically um, in effect giving notice that the employment relationship shall end upon expiration, which would be June 30th, 2022. But Ross, was it necessary then to give her a two-year extension last night? Well, well, Jill, first, first and foremost, you know, so the committee voted unanimously to give the superintendent a proficient evaluation. And then this issue that came up at the last meeting was either we have to give her a two-year extension or give the superintendent notice that she'll be non-renewed in one year from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to note that the committee voted, voted four to one to extend the superintendent's contract for two years with Mr. DeRujo dissenting from that vote. Um, and it seems justified that the committee had to make this decision last night based on the contractual language that Vice Chair O'Neill presented. The way Vice Chair O'Neill presented it made it seem that it, it had to be a binary decision between termination or two-year extension. However, Jill, something really strange happened after this discussion and this vote. There was another vote that the committee immediately voted on to essentially extend her contract provision by two, her notice by two days. Right. So so essentially what they said is we're making this decision on, on June 30th, but we won't be able to mail the decision to the superintendent for a few days. So let's extend the timeline by which we have to make the, this decision until early July, right? Or, or July 2nd, or whatever right. it is. Right. So the reality is the committee could have extended this decision for a few months. Right. right? Well, why, why, if two days, then you can do it for two months or six months or whatever you of want. Of course. Right. Yeah. Why would you make a decision? So, you know, so anyway, you know, the question is, why would you make this decision when you have an acting mayor, an incomplete school committee? And we just concluded a year disrupted by the pandemic when the committee could have waited a few months and had much more stability to make a decision. So, yes, I mean, Jill, you asked the question, did the committee need to make this decision? Well, from Mr. O'Neill's point of view, it seemed like yes. But then from the behavior of the committee and from the language that they used in the next vote, clearly no. They could have they could have worked with the superintendent and said, how about we extend this decision until November? The superintendent could have said, okay, and we wouldn't be in this position. So, so essentially, the committee had any option that they wanted because they were they were able to amend the contract. They chose to amend it so that they could approve her contract last night. But it was a conscious decision to do that, not something that was actually forced upon them for legal reasons. Correct, Jill. And, and the committee felt like they had to justify their behavior last night and their vote last night through a a technical presentation of why they had to do this. 
but but they could have just easily have extended her contract by, or her, this decision by three months. And essentially, they contradicted themselves. You know, right after this vote, they went in and, and made a vote to uh, to change her contract by a couple of days. Yeah, interesting. So as the meeting moved to comments from the school committee members on the topic of the superintendent's renewed contract, Hardin Coleman set the tone for how he expects the district to move forward. And Jill, just before we play um, the quote from Dean Coleman, I, I want to provide a little bit of context and background on this. The Boston Globe, and we'll link to this story, wrote a story about an internal poll conducted by the school system called the Gallup Poll. And it was this was obtained and published by the Globe last week. And it showed that about a quarter of the Boston Public Schools central office staff and school leaders feel engaged in their work. About a quarter feel engaged in their work. While almost as many people are actively working against the system. You know, so almost a quarter are working against the system undermining their colleagues and acting out in their unhappiness as being part of BPS. And the poll showed that the rest of the district staff, more than 50%, just feel disengaged and withdrawn and don't know like the direction of the school system. It's clear that most people in BPS are not satisfied with the current direction of the district. So the poll is showing that there's a a great deal, 75% of folks who are involved in the district there's a, there's a sense of discomfort and unrest among 700 central office staff and school leaders in BPS. Okay, so now here is how Dean Coleman proposes that the district move forward within that context. In, in a public system, in a, in a, she can't fire everyone and, and have 20 people looking for every job. It takes time to move forward, to bring everyone's behavior in line with our value system, with the pragmatics of of the operational plan within the the strategic vision that we've established. So for that reason, I am a huge uh, proponent, as Ms. Robinson said earlier, of the stability that this two-year contract will bring to our system so that people know. And I want to be very upfront about the idea there are people in our system for whom this will not that this will be not reflect what they want to happen because they're not aligned with the strategic vision as we're now operationalizing it. And that gives them choice. Rather than sitting and waiting, it gives them choice. And then as we rejuvenate, uh, re, uh, reimagine, re, redefine what we're doing, people know that we as a school committee are committed to this strategic vision and plan at this point in time. And if people are going to come into our community to work with us, this is a system they're coming into, not something that may change in six months or, or a year. This is something we're committed to because we have to drive deep changes to get the outcomes we desire. So, I, I, so Jill, I think we'll leave, we'll leave it at that. But, it, but clearly, the discontent raised in this Gallup poll um, seems, uh, at least from Dean Coleman, seems um, it seems to be a position that these employees need to sort of come along to the superintendent rather than 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 holding you know holding the the BPS team accountable for making sure people feel more engaged in their work. And by the way, seven hundred people—it's a lot of people to replace. But let's leave it. Let's leave it at that. So, Jill, the meeting moved on um, to a report and recommendation from the exam school task force, and. 
um, you know, we've taught this is this has been you know months and months in the making, and they've this task force has had over sixty hours of meetings, and they came with a proposal last night to school committee. And if you would allow me, I'll, I'll try to summarize the proposal that they brought forward to the school committee. Sure. So President Tanisha Sullivan of the NAACP is one of the co-chairs, and then Michael Contempasis is the other co-chair, and they both co-presented this proposal. This is focused, Jill, on on eligibility for the exam schools, and then invitations into the exam schools. So who is eligible, determining student preparedness for the exam schools, and then in what order are students invited into the exam schools. And I'm just gonna break this down into next year and then for the future years. So it's slightly different for next year than it is for future years. Right. So for next year, this is the admission cycle in school year 22 to 23. They're going to use 100%, they're proposing to use 100% of student grades to determine who is eligible for the exam schools. And these grades will be used just in sixth grade, the first two terms of sixth grade, and it will be four subject areas, ELA, math, science, and social studies. And students will have to have a B or higher average, and then their grades will be pulled together in some way and then rank ordered yeah. in, in the system. Beyond next year, in school year 23, 24 and beyond, the district is gonna use grades just as I described them, but they're also gonna use fifth grade, end of year grades for ELA math. Mm-hmm. And they're gonna use sixth grade grades, the first two terms for ELA, math, science and social studies. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to be essentially 70% of the student's weight, if you will, to determine eligibility. And the other 30% will be determined by an assessment. It's not defined. It's not defined yet. Yeah. Okay. It it formally was the IC, ISEE test. It was discussed, maybe it would be the MAP, but maybe not. And they're not clear on what assessment would be used but they are clear that the assessment would be given twice, once in the spring of the fifth grade year for the student, and once in the fall of the sixth grade year for the student, and the highest score would be used for that student. And and, and so again, going forward after next year, it would be 70% grades, 30% weight on assessment. And then there's another, there's one more variation of this in terms of eligibility, and, and that is essentially, a poverty index, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the way that the, the task force determined this was, was basically saying, look, if a student attends a school with 50% or more students identified as economically disadvantaged, that they would receive an additional 10 points weighted in the invitation process. So you would receive, if you went to one of those schools, no matter, no matter your uh, family's income, right. if you attended one of those schools, you would receive 10 points. Yeah. And likewise, if you, were, if you are economically disadvantaged, but you attend a school with less than 50% of students economically disadvantaged, you wouldn't receive those points. Right. That makes sense? It does. There's not another way, which for students experiencing homelessness, students in the care of DCF, or students living in Boston Public Housing, or Boston Housing Authority, they would receive 15 points in the invitation process, but you couldn't do both. You'd either receive 10 points or 15 points, depending upon 
eligibility, but students who qualify for both wouldn't receive 25. It would either be 15 or 10. And that's out of how many points? We don't know. We, so one thing, one thing is not determined. We don't, we don't know the total composite score or cutoff. Um, that wasn't mentioned last night. Okay. So that falls to post-recommendation, or do you think that that will, I guess the recommendation was made. So that's up to school committee to decide then how the composite score. Is. Correct. So this is the recommendation to school committee. The recommendation to school committee is, is this is the way the task force is saying we would like to move forward. And these points is the mm -hmm. weight that the task force is putting forward for a vote. Well, we'll hear about this question a little bit more later, Jill, when, when committee members are start asking questions, but, it, but essentially this is not defined. So Jill, right. that's who would be ineligible for an invitation for, to, right. to the exam schools. And then, and then how they're, how they're selected or invited is sort of the mechanism, like, right. So, so once you're, you've, you've met eligibility, then mm -hmm. there would be a mechanism for how they are assigned a school. Right. And so this is a, a straight mechanism. This is no, there's no differentiation between next year and then future years. This is all starting next year. So for school year 22, 23 and beyond, the task force is recommending that there's a 20% straight rank citywide. Okay. So for, for next year, that would just be grades. And for future years, that'd be grades and assessment, 70, 30%. And everybody would be ranked straight up ranked citywide. And the top 20% would be reserved for top ranking applicants citywide. And then essentially they would be, invitations would be extended to those applicants in order by their first choice selection. And this is what happened this past year, by the way, the, the same, the top 20% yeah. across yeah. the city, um, essentially in order, stacked ranks got their first choice. And then the 80%. Okay. Is right. By right. So now, tiers. so now you're, you, yep, right. you're exactly. Um, so the next 80% is a straight rank by socioeconomic status tiers. And these tiers are, are census trying to be census track tiers. Okay. So no more zip codes as there was this past year. They're looking at census track tiers based on SES, socioeconomic status of families. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they're using some proxies to get to that. So they're looking at, you know, single family uh, home ownership and some other proxies to get at these, these, these eight um, socioeconomic census, census track tiers. And okay. um, seven of these tiers, Jill, are, have similar number of students in them. This year we had a, there was some concern around zip codes and number of students who live in different neighborhoods and proportionality. Going forward, the, the task force is saying, look, we have some, we have some like tiers by census, by socioeconomic status with same kind of number of students. And we'll go through the process, 80% of those uh, of the students in those tiers will we'll start with the lowest tier, socioeconomic tier. And those, those mm -hmm. students will choose schools first. And 10% of seats will be allocated in each round. Jill, I don't want to make this overly complicated, but seven of these tiers are going to seven of these tiers are going to be socioeconomic, they're socioeconomic tiers um, by census track. Yeah. One of these tiers, the first tier, is going to be for students who are um, homeless 
in the care of DCF or live in Boston Housing Authority. Okay. And that's the eighth tier. And those students will, will choose schools first in their specialized tier. Mm -hmm. In the tier, Jill, they'll be, they'll be rank ordered. Students will be rank ordered by their grades and test score. Okay. Okay. So, and then there'll be 10 rounds with 10% of seats being allocated in each round. And they'll go through that process. Highest socioeconomic tier will choose last. Lowest socioeconomic tier chooses first. Got it. The committee, the task force also made a series of recommendations. They said, we've got to deal with grading. We got to move BPS fifth grade system um, from a standards-based grading system to an A through F grading system. So we have comparability to other schools outside BPS. We got to have better investments and supporting students and in, in rigor. We got to have better communications. We should review this policy every five years. We need an annual report on outcomes of this policy. And most importantly, we need more student support efforts to ensure that our students are prepared and um, ready for uh, these schools. Jill, I hope that was clear, but that, that's, that, that was the recommendation made last night to school committee. No, this is a great summary. There are many complexities. And to your point about the ambiguity of the point system that's being recommended, Zyra Mercer, the who always asks great questions, the, she's the student representative on the committee, asks this question. My second question was, um, what exactly do the points represent? Is there like a max total of points that students can receive? And the co-chairs of the task force provide this response. So the high poverty indicators. So a student um, can receive either 10 points if they attend a school identified as high poverty or, and it is an or, 15 points if a student is in the care of DCF experiencing homelessness or living in BHA housing, whichever is higher. But my question for that is like, what exactly do those points represent? Like, does that like make them higher up on the list, lower on the list? Like, what exactly do those points like attribute to? That's, that is the intent. Yeah. Excellent question. And so what would happen is you have the grades in the assessment and there'd be a score, a composite score that a student would receive. And then if a student falls into one of the two categories that I just described, they would receive on top of that composite score an additional 10 points or an additional 15 points. The effect of that is because we're doing straight ranking, right, in order to select the seats. The effect of that is to provide students, as Mr. Condon Passas outlined, who, might, who may have experienced significant mobility, may not have access to significant resources to give them um, an opportunity to, to put them in a position where they have um, an opportunity to access these schools. So that is, that is indeed um, the intention and specifically related to our lower income, um, most vulnerable students. 
And particularly if that student via the assessment has shown a terrific result. So it's really to, to uh, as Ms. Sullivan has suggested, to uh, increase the possibility that that student would rise up in rank. So Jill, um, I, I, so, so right, there's this, there's this outstanding question around what is, what is the composite score? What is the weight? Trying to get to the details of implementation with this. Um, I, I also, I, right. I, I'm remiss, I, and, I've, and I've, I'm sorry to do this, but I, I wanna just go back for one second and talk about process. Because in this exam school task force, there was not consensus on the recommendation that I just provided an overview of. In, in fact, there was right. dissension, and we heard from a couple of dissenting members of the task force saying, look, we're, we're not really supportive of, this, of what we're putting forward today. And there's a couple points of, of contention here, Jill. One major point of contention is this stack rank, this, this sort of ranking every student. Some members of the task force would have rather had a lottery. Once you have eligibility yeah. and you show eligibility to get to be ready for an exam school, there should be a lottery that would you know, basically be randomly choosing students to get into these seats. Because if you're eligible, no one student is better eligible than another is what their argument would be, okay? Right. We also heard concern about this 80-20 split. If you're going for, for full equity and ensuring everybody has the same access, um, why reserve 20% of seats citywide um, and then use 80% for socioeconomic tiers? Um, and that was another point of uh, dissension on the example. And, and that was because in the models that they looked at, that, that 20% were primarily students of privilege is what they said. Yeah, we don't have access to- But there's also, you have to, they, all of the models use test scores that have already, we're not using the test, the assessment that was used, right? So there's also like, there's complexity in the data that's being used. We haven't seen any of the uh, modeling or, or, or what, you know, I, last night we heard a, a, a number of times from exam school task force members about simulations and models. I have not seen any of those right. simulations or models. I think it would be good to have those be public so people can make their own judgments about what would and wouldn't yeah. happen based on what we heard from the dis dissension point of view from the exam school task force. Right. But I, but I, would, I just, I would be remiss if we didn't sort of talk about this was not a consensus. This, this was not a consensus presented last night. And there was actually never a consensus, right? Cause there's some, because the, when they presented the, dissent, the dissenting point of view, they said, we wrote this point of view after the second to last meeting. So, so because, because, right, the dissenters want a lottery. And what the final task force meeting was, was a debate around 80, 20 or hundred percent. And so there's actually three, there were three different options on the table. Jill, school committee chair, Jerry Robinson, then she later tried to gain further clarity on this proposal uh, on the specifics of the recommendation. She, she asked about the impact of inconsistent grading policies across different schools. And then she asked how parents will get information about what tiers their children are in. And again, neither question elicits a really clear response from members. You know, how can you make a decision about whether 10 or 15 points is the right amount to add on when we really don't know how much those are worth in the total score? How can we decide how, mm -hmm. how much 
grades should be weighted when every school grades differently? You know, how can we decide what weight to put on an assessment without knowing what the assessment will be? There, there seems to be a sense that we should just vote on the overall policy and then work out the details later, but that's very dangerous. You know, the reality is that these questions are really rubber meets the road and it gets to the merit of the policies itself. Right. And there was a key theme throughout this entire discussion, which was that we as a city are too focused on the wrong issue, actually, and that there's a much more important issue, which is that we're not preparing all students in the Boston public schools equally for success in high school and college and beyond. So here is the exam school task force member and the head of one of the three exam schools, the John D. O'Brien School, Tanya Freeman Wisdom, talking at the last exam school task force meeting, which was on Tuesday night. I know we've said it's not the charge of this task force, but the real issue is that our students, when we look at the fourth grade, third and fourth grade test scores, the students within Boston Public Schools are not performing at the same level as some of their white peers. And, you know, I know this is where this work ends. And this maybe this would feel better if there was, like I said, if we were still working, if there was a task force that was working on that piece around to find out what's happening with it, what's happening with those grade with our students at that level. And then this is exam school task force member Roseanne Tong. An oft-level critique has been that the human, financial, and political capital poured into this admissions process is misguided and should be put into improving the other 120 plus BPS schools. Actually, we believe that when the admissions of the three schools become test blind and lottery based, and when all of the students who test well attend more than just three schools, system-wide improvement will accelerate. And then here is Jerry Robinson, school committee chair. I wanna thank you all for this amazing journey that you've been on, the 60 plus hours. And you know, I've said this to both of you before, I hope at some point we can spend 60 hours talking about the McKinley schools. 60 hours talking about Madison Park, 60 hours talking about all the other 120 plus schools and 50,000 kids that we have. Um, so, you know, it is clear that this is a systemic issue where we focus on these three schools and fight over admissions, you know, like every 20 years. Um, this will continue to happen unless we rethink our zero sum game here in Boston. Every student who qualifies for an exam school should have the option to attend an exam school, period. Yeah. This, in fact, will, will take years. This policy will take years to play out. Implementation will be challenging. We'll have to determine which test will be used, deal with grade inflation, figure out composite score cutoffs, et cetera. All of this takes time, energy, and resources away from other schools. You know, Jill, in fact, we heard... Um, Another presentation last night during the renewal of the W Street Charter School. And over the past four years, they presented data on how their students are growing, right, each year. 
And they, they basically said, you know, their students, 50 to 70%, somewhere between any 50 to 70% of their students are achieving about one year's worth of growth on ELA and math. And mm -hmm. there was no questions from committee members about this. This means that, you know, up to half of the students at this school are not making a year's worth of progress, even though they're attending school for an entire year. And right. something is wrong here. When we have a committee who should be paying attention to these things, right? Like asking a question, what could we do to help the students who are not making a year's worth of progress? How can we help them um, make a year's worth of progress? Like that, that should be the minimum, right. um, but not a question, not a question about the data, not a question about how the students are doing, zero. Um, it, that's really concerning. The committee needs to pay attention more, ask questions and care about kids in every school. No exam school policy, no matter how elaborate, will solve for the inequities in our public school system. What, what will begin to solve for the inequities in our system is if the school committee puts students first, holds leaders accountable, and devotes its time and energy to a comprehensive strategy for the entire district, including clear goals and objectives and an incentive structure that gets us there. Yes. Now, the final presentation of the evening was an update about the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funding, which um, is referred to as ESSER funding in most meetings, and I think in this podcast as well. So, Jill, I'll, I'll do a quick summary here. There wasn't uh, any major information shared other than um, the committee, the commission is dedicated to sending at least half the money from ESSER relief funds uh, to schools. Um, the right. timing of this is really important, right? Because schools need to know this now and the funding now in order to make decisions for the upcoming year. If you remember this funding is federal funding to help us recover from the pandemic, the hardest year of our lives, right? And the students in our schools mm -hmm. who have been remote for over a year, um, we need to give, get those funds to our, student, to our schools, to our students. Um, and we need to do so immediately. And the funds being held up in this commission is really problematic. And in fact, if, you know, if there's not gonna be a vote for a number of weeks still, it's gonna put schools in a very difficult position to put the necessary supports into place for our students in the fall. They got a higher staff, change their schedule, put resources uh, into play. So I would recommend that if we know that over half the resources are going to schools, send them now to our schools. Tell our schools right. now what they're gonna get so our, our school leaders can be planful. In fact, um, our charter, the charter schools uh, in the city have already received their funds. They're already planning for, they've already hired additional staff for next year. They've already changed their schedules for next year. And we put our schools at a severe disadvantage uh, solely because of timing. Not, not because we don't know that money's gonna go to school, but we're just taking too long to make a decision. I'm hopeful that you know, this decision is made as soon as possible and that schools get to know what their amount is and begin to be planful uh, for this. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Reflecting on this meeting, here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. How will the school committee vote on approving the recommendation from the exam school task force if questions of implementation haven't been resolved? Will BPS be able to fill the empty summer school seats? And how do we know who still needs a plan for summer? Looking back 
at some questions that were asked that had we haven't heard answers to from from meetings past. Where will the horseman students attend school until their new school is built? How are the issues being resolved with the McCormick BCLA merger? And Jill, we've heard very little from about teachers and, and next year, even though we've heard nationally there's a teacher shortage. How many teachers have been hired for the 21-22 school year and how many vacancies remain? What are the updated enrollment projections for next year based on the first round of student assignments? And what are the members of the graduating class of 2021 doing next? And of course, Jill, there are ways to engage and get involved. Uh, we encourage listeners to advocate for a clear strategy on how the influx recovery money will be spent for the long-term positive change for BPS. I would encourage people to attend the next commission meeting. Um, it is tonight at 5 p.m. And if you have an opportunity to speak out, I encourage the commission to release the funds as soon as possible. Also attend an exam school task force listening session next week before the school committee votes on the final proposal before their next meeting. They will be meeting, the listening session will be on July 7th at 5 p.m. And lastly, apply for a nominating, apply to the nominating committee for a seat on the school committee. They need you. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.